Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. In the summer of 1893, renowned Czech composer Antonin Dvorak traveled with his family to spend the summer in Spillville, Iowa, a tiny town in northeastern Iowa. He loved the community and was inspired by the beauty of the natural world and by the culture of the Midwestern United States. He only spent three months in Spillville, but his stay inspired some of his most powerful work, and many Iowans are very proud of the connection. The work of Antonin Dvorak continues to inspire, and Iowa artist Gary Kelly recently published a graphic novel based on Dvorak's time in America and in Spillville, and it's published by Ice Cube Press, which is an underwriter of IPR. Gary Kelly is with me now. Hello, Gary. Hello. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. And Gary, you have actually produced a number of graphic novels that are focused on music and musicians. Can you tell me when you got excited about writing about and and drawing Antonin Dvorak? Well, um, I'm not sure if it was the concert or not. It could have, I'd heard of him a long time ago. And uh, and I got excited about him. I got interested in him um, because of like my title says, red, white, and black, because he came to Iowa for the summer. And in New York, when he was there, uh, coming came over from, from Prague, um, when he was there, he was very interested in the African-American culture in New York City. And when he came to Iowa, he, he got hooked on American Indian culture in Spillville, Iowa. So that that's what got me hooked on his yeah. life. Well, and so you write about a, a part of Antonin Dvorak's life that I wasn't familiar with because I'm an Iowan and I knew about his time here in Iowa, but I guess I hadn't really done much research beyond that. So you write about how he had already made for a name for himself as a composer in mm-hmm. Europe, and mm-hmm. he was invited to the United States. He was invited to New York City, and he was excited to come because he was really interested in other cultures beyond uh, the European cultures that, that he was familiar with. He was excited, as you said, about African Americans. He was excited about Native Americans. He also expressed interest in in Africa and India and people from other parts of the world. But he came um, to New York City to teach at a, a specific institution. Tell me a little bit about that relationship and what brought him here. Well, that that was why he came because um, he he was interested in in the variety of culture I think in Europe, uh, and uh, he came to um, New York City, um, I think in 1892, uh, and uh, he came to teach, and and then he had of course this, this after the school year was over he had the summer off, and he had. He had come with, like, like you said, he'd come with a, a, a real uh, interest in the variety in, in cu- cultures of color, and uh, when he got to New York, he got hooked on the 
black music, uh, African-American music, uh, back in the late 1890s, of course, uh, or early 1890s, excuse me, um, and, uh, and then learning about American history a little bit, he was kind of fascinated by maybe going west and, and finding something uh, about the people that had settled there and especially about the, the natives that, uh, that lived there first. Yeah, and he w- he was teaching at America's National Conservatory of Music in New York City, and th- it strikes me that this conservatory must have also been very progressive because they they yeah. did allow black students to study at the conservatory. And again, this is the early eighteen nineties, so that had to be fairly unusual. Yeah, it it, it, abs- it absolutely grabbed uh, Antony. I mean, it it really did. And he also really connected with uh, some of his black students. Harry Burley was one of the conservatory's first black students and became kind of the the right-hand man of Dvorak when he was there. He was. Harry was was probably uh, maybe partly why he got to Iowa eventually. I don't know Um, why why Dvorak did, I mean, because... uh, no, they they got to be very close, and he I think Burley uh, was his favorite uh, his favorite student and assistant. And um, he was intending to go back back home that first summer, but instead he got an invitation to come to Iowa, and he had been excited about visiting other parts of the country. He wanted to go to the World's Fair in Chicago, mm-hmm. but. What on earth brought him to Spillville, Iowa, which is still a very small community, but was pretty minuscule back then? Yeah. Well, and of course, I think back then, or maybe to Dvorak, it was Spielville, S-P-I-E-L-V-I-L-L-E. And uh, I think he came um, because of the variety of culture and uh, and just to... um, I mean, there were there were some um, some Europeans here in Iowa already, right? And this was kind of a bohemian town, yes, so this yes, was absolutely. his culture. Yes, and that's why back then it was called S P I E L V I L L E. So, so the culture of the town felt familiar to him, but he fell madly in love with the beauty of the natural world. And anybody who's been to Spillville knows that it's still incredibly beautiful up there in the Driftless region. He had a really strong connection to nature, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Yes, he did. Um, And from where I'm speaking right now in Iowa, it's not Driftless now. It's (laughs) it's been snowing. (laughs) Yeah, we're full of snow drifts right now. But... um, he would go for long walks uh, when he was in Spillville. He would go for long walks when he was in New York City as well. And he found a lot of inspiration in nature, in the birds, in the flowers, in the trees. Totally. And, and so so he was actually composing in his mind when he was out on these walks? Well, I would assume he was. I mean, I, you know, I, I read whatever I could find on him. And uh, that's what in, I... I I knew right away I wanted I, I was just so interested in 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 the way he thought about music and and what inspired him the variety of of the red white and black music and 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 of course um uh that's well there were a lot of um 
um, um, bohemians in uh, checks with balance in uh, in um, in that part of Iowa in, in northeast Iowa. That's where Spielville is, and um, and that's what got him there too, I think. But just for the summer, or for, for the school uh, for the not the summer, excuse me, the school year. Right, and you you mentioned that Dvorak had a, a really strong interest in Native Americans and Native American culture. When he was living in New York City, he had, he had attended Buffalo Bill's Wild West. And, Absolutely. And of course, we know that uh, as the European settlers moved west, that Native people were removed from their land yeah. or killed or died of, of viruses that were transmitted by the settlers. And so a lot of really difficult, terrible things had happened, which meant that there there weren't a lot of Native people in Iowa in the 1890s. But while he was in Spillville, a medicine show called the Kickapoo Indian Medicine, medicine Show did come to the area. So he had an opportunity to actually meet Native Americans and actually interact with them and, and ask them about their culture, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it was... Um, it was the Kickapoo um, show, but um, but uh, he, uh, he in, in my in my story, I realized that um, Sitting Bull became uh, an inspiration to him uh, as well. And, and of course, Sitting Bull was uh, at that during that period. Sitting Bull was a, a notable um, Dakota Indian, uh, not a Kickapoo, but yeah. uh, but it was it was just that region and that that. Native American culture that grabbed him. So he was moved by the music. He was moved by the culture. And we know that many of the things that he experienced in Iowa became an important part of his most important compositions. And we can't have a conversation about Antonin Dvorak without music. So um, <laughs> we, we are going to bring um, Jason Weinberger into the conversation. He is the artistic director and conductor of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony Orchestra. Jason, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It is wonderful to have you here, and we're actually going to have to take a short break here in just a moment, but I wonder if you could introduce just a bit of music, because you've brought some music to share, the live recordings of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony Orchestra, and I think it would be wonderful to get a taste of Dvorak before we, we talk more about him. Yeah, that sounds great. We're going to hear the opening of a piece that Dvorak wrote shortly after the time he spent in Iowa. And uh, this was something that was part of our, our musical tribute to Dvorak, which is tied in with the, the novel, the graphic novel that you've been discussing with Gary. So this is the opening of the piece. It's the very first movement of uh, the American Suite by Dvorak. He originally wrote it for piano, and then he orchestrated it just uh, less than a year after he left Iowa. And it, it really feels to me, when you listen to it, it feels to me like it's sort of dual thing going on with Dvorak in this music. On one hand, this memory of, of the prairie, you know, this rolling place by the river, you know, where he lived and, and, and made music and, and was among, you know, bohemians in America. Uh, and, then, and then that bohemian streak comes out and there's sort of this, uh, this second side to the music which reflects his roots. So it, it's wonderful music and I thought it was, it was just kind of appropriate for the conversation that we're having.
That is just an excerpt from the first movement of Antonin Dvorak's American Suite in A Major, Opus 98B, performed by the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony Orchestra. We will continue to talk about Antonin Dvorak in just a moment. With me today, artist Gary Kelly, who has recently published a graphic novel based on Dvorak's time in America. It's called Red, White, and Black, America's Check with Balance, Antonin Dvorak. And also with us today, Jason Weinberger, the artistic director and conductor of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony Orchestra. More in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, I'm talking with Iowa artist Gary Kelly. He recently published a graphic novel based on the life of Antonin Dvorak a Czech composer who spent time not just in the United States back in the 1890s, but he spent three months in Iowa, in Spillville, Iowa, a little town up in the northeastern part of the state in the Driftless region. And Gary Kelly has written a graphic novel about that time. It's called Red, White, and Black, America's Czech with Balance, Antonin Dvorak. And Gary is here, but also... Jason Weinberger, he is the artistic director and conductor of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony Orchestra. And we just heard a little bit of Dvorak performed by the Symphony Orchestra. And Jason, back in 2019, you partnered with Gary to create a multimedia performance of Dvorak's music. Can you tell me a little bit about what you two put together? Sure. We, um, we had been working together actually for quite a while um, developing a concept that that originated about, I want to say, 12 years earlier. And this is bringing together Gary's artwork with live orchestral performance. And the artwork is, I, I don't want to say animated, but it's, it's sort of um, digitized and it's um, brought to life on a screen in a way that complements and supports and, and kind of works together with the music to, we believe, we really believe it, it enhances the the both the imagery and the music. It's, it's been a fantastic collaboration. And we've worked together on the music of Holst. That's a, the Planets was our maiden project. And we revisited that. And we've done uh, uh, work based on the music of Ellington and George Gershwin. Uh, we did a fantastic Mahler piece, which was a Halloween feature. Um, so we've really had a lot of experience. And we've refined a technical system that allows us to control how the imagery moves live during a concert so that we can align it with the music that we've chosen. Um, so this, this show uh, actually was kind of a culmination of a lot of that development. The idea being that we wanted to create an evening length theatrical story, visual and musical about what had happened here, like, you know, just about 90 miles away from Cedar Falls um, when Dvorak came and spent the summer here and, and was so influenced by what he experienced and, um, you know, this production in the end kind of bears witness to it because we have music in there uh, that he wrote uh, that was a result of his time spent there. And this iconic imagery that Gary created to um, to match that music. It was really 
Um, I think the most ambitious thing we've done, and, and Gary might want to speak to that too, but it, it, it certainly, uh, to, to me, felt like the culmination of a lot of our work together and also uh, quite a few projects that the orchestra has done on its own and, you know, that relate to the music of Dvorak, including some performances that we did in Spillville. So, uh, so that that remains one of the highlights of my entire uh, time with the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony is this project that we did on the music of Dvorak. Wow! So it must be so much fun for you to see Gary's graphic novel too, which grew out of that time. I mean, that may have been four years ago, but obviously, this was a really inspiring performance. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two interesting sides to this. For a couple of the projects we've done, Gary has created. Um, like an accompaniment, you know, a book or a, or a little zine, or, a, or in this case, it's a real, you know, substantial graphic novel um, that pairs up well with the, the uh, multimedia musical project that we've done. But, but the other thing it does, I think, is it opens up to a much wider audience, this experience of, of seeing this artwork and hearing this music together. And, and if you're lucky, like me, you actually get to see some of these artworks in person, some of the, you know, the canvases and, and the works on paper that Gary's created for these shows. Uh, and I think, I think, you know, it's so wonderful um, that we can be a part of this mix of mediums that Gary's, that Gary's work appears in, you know, so we've got, we've got novels and we've got magazines and then you, you can go to Barnes and Noble, you can see the work there and then these concerts. And it, it just, it adds to that and amplifies, I think the influence that Gary's work has had on, you know, not just us in Iowa, but all around the world. Well, and Gary, I would love to hear your thoughts about creating art that's inspired by music. I mean, I think about the phrase, you know, dancing about architecture. You are are using music in an unusual way to create this visual medium. Well, ever since I was a little kid, um, the sound the sound system always was really important to me to movies I went to. The soundtrack, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the music, that's that makes a lot for me and uh the thing about um Dvorak that grabbed me was the for of course the fact that he spent some time in Iowa not far from where Jason and I are and were um but how connected he got with the culture and and the the place up there about um you know I don't know hour and a half from where Jason and I are together during a school year and um, once I discovered all that, the, the things that inspired Dvorak really, really gra- grabbed me. Yeah. Uh, well, and I would love, Jason, for I think a lot of people are familiar with Dvorak, even if they don't know that they're familiar with Dvorak. Uh, the New World Symphony, or at least what we popularly call the New World Symphony, is, is something that I think everybody has heard parts of, even if they just watch television commercials, right? Yeah, and, and I think one of the funny things about where we are in Iowa and, and just, you know, our region in general is that the, the awareness that this happened is low. You know, it's sort of like, oh, that, that composer, yeah, I've heard that piece before, you know, whether it's like in a commercial somewhere or like you said, the New World Symphony kind of has top billing in a lot of different ways, whether it's a concert or used in films and, and you know, has this beautiful slow movement that now we really associate with the with the feeling of the prairie and the and the sort of the rural Midwest. Um, but as as I've encountered, you know, through my work um, with this orchestra over a couple of decades, you know, it's not a story that is known very widely outside of our area. Sort of, you know, 
just tangentially like, oh, yeah, Dvorak was in America and he went to the Midwest for a while. And, you know, that's what we know about it. But we've been able, I think, um, in our region, it's not just our organization. I, you know, we've done this and other organizations have done this, too, really to kind of explore the history and the legacy of this cultural encounter that um, occurred when when Dvorak was here in the Midwest. Uh, and that's, you know, that's something that has, you know, it's not just the production with Gary, but just this interaction with Dvorak has been an amazingly rewarding thing for me as a musician. Yeah, well, and and as a person who um, has focused a lot of her time exploring Iowa history, I'll say that I, I have a backwards approach to this where I learned that Dvorak came to Iowa before I actually really knew who Dvorak was. So let's let's take my backwards approach. <laughs> and Jason, take us back a, a little bit. I mean, he, he became a Czech composer. He was kind of a musical prodigy when he was growing up, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, Dvorak is, is such an interesting character in the history of music because, you know, I mean, like many other composers, he was a prodigy, very gifted at a young age. But he had a, a sort of a unique sensibility, I think, um, particularly among the composers we associate with, like, um, you know, the great tradition of European music. And, you know, we, I think we generally call it classical music or, you know, art music. And we have Bach and, you know, the composers of the Baroque and Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven, the classical period and later in the 19th century, Tchaikovsky and and those kinds of composers. And Dvorak comes in there throughout that period of time. It was roughly contemporaneous with with Tchaikovsky and Brahms and it influenced the later composers like Mahler. But um, where his true distinction is as a musician, as a composer, is in his ear for oral traditions, you know, for folk traditions. So music that was passed down from generation to generation, and particularly in these parts of the world in, in Bohemia and, and, and moving east from there, um, there are these, you know, incredibly rich folk traditions and um, village music and song that's passed down from generation to generation, much of which has never been written down. Uh, and Dvorak just kind of, um, he had a, 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 his virtuosity, really, um, his gift was in hearing these things and being able to translate them into this other art form, this more um, kind of rarefied and, and I would say historical art form of, you know, classical music, um, which had, you know, I was always interested in, in integrating folk music, but the way Dvorak did it, you know, he, he sort of, he made the classical music speak the language of folk music. And it's, it's a very singular kind of achievement that he accomplished. And I think that's what made his trip to America so impactful was he came here with the same ears and the same attitude. And I think that's what attracted Gary to the project and Gary and I to the musical project is, is the fascination with how Dvorak was so attuned to that and so interested in those kinds of cultural elements, uh, more so maybe than, than many Americans were at the time. Well, and so he really was able to um, bring his culture, the culture that he grew up in, forward in a new way and and amplify it in some ways, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the things that, that we forget about like Dvorak's lifetime is this, you know, we're talking about before the, the record and the record player and before mass media um, and the way that, that people um, experienced this music was to go to concerts. And a, a funny thing, interesting thing happened during Dvorak's lifetime. Many, many, um, Many people in the growing sort of bourgeois middle class in the second half of the 19th century acquired pianos in their homes. And so composers like Dvorak and, and uh, Brahms and others, but right during this period of time in the second half of the 19th century, they started writing music for piano or two pianos. And 
Dvorak Slavonic Dances, which featured really very prominently in our, in our production of Choose the New World, these were pieces that, um, like Brahms' Hungarian dances, um, they made their composers lots and lots of money and gave them huge amounts of success and recognition because it was an avenue for their music to spread. Um, and, for, and especially for Dvorak, I think, but as we see with, with Brahms as well, there's a, there was an interest in people wanted to hear these melodies and hear them harmonized and play them at home and sort of, you know, it's folk music. I mean, we all want right. to sing it. So, so and it was the pop music of the day. Exactly. Yeah. And they did it so well um, that they kind of set the standard for this. And, uh, and I think that's one of the things that makes that makes Dvorak really quite interesting among his contemporaries. So, I mean, being in Europe, obviously, that was really the, the pinnacle of this classical music culture. Was it unusual for a composer of his stature to come to the United States in the 1890s? You know, it wasn't actually that unusual. There was there was strong interest in New York and, and other cities in bringing the, you know, the best classical musicians in the world to these conservatories and to these orchestras. So, you know, just after uh, Dvorak left, just a couple of years after he left the National Conservatory of Music in New York, Gustav Mahler was appointed to be the music director at the Metropolitan Opera and was also the conductor of the New York Philharmonic. So um, this was happening and it was noteworthy, I think, in American culture. This is not like sort of an oddity or, you know, hey, some guy named Dvorak, you know, came to the school for a couple of years. This was this was part of a cultural movement in America that I think involves um, this first wave of artists coming here and bringing, you know, their experience and their sensibility to this country's musical scene. And of course, it was extremely unusual for a composer of his stature to come and spend three months in Iowa. Uh, so, so that's a very, a very unusual part of the story. Um, as I said, I mean, I think I think the New World Symphony is something that, that people are familiar with, not just because it's an incredible work of art, but because we hear ourselves, we hear our culture or how we like to think about the United States reflected in this incredible work. Why, why do you think we love it so much and, and it was so, is so important? It's one of the, the hardest things to put your finger on. And, and I, I would be curious what Gary would say, because he's tasked with an interesting job of responding to that music and then turning it into an image that makes sense of, of you know, that question. Um, and and it, it's, a, it's a really a hard thing, I think, for either one of us to really define, you know, clearly and objectively. But I think there's there's a feeling, particularly with Dvorak, that he he's very attuned to not only what he's hearing, but just his environment in general. And I think as he grew older and became more mature as a composer, and that coincided with the time that he spent in America, um, he was able to convey more than just a musical idea about America. You know, I think he was able to pick up on a lot of things when he listened to different types of music and say, oh, wow, I hear this here, you know, and I don't hear this in Bohemia. This is interesting to me. But the way that he could also reflect kind of, you know, the, the feeling of life, you know, and the feeling of space in his music is, is just really remarkable. And it fascinates us as musicians. But for Gary and I, it's, it's kind of fascinated us as we've been in this multimedia world and tried to reflect what Dvorak was all about. Gary, do you want to add to that? Why do you think this music is still so powerful and important? Well, <clears throat> it's 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 what Jason said, but um, absolutely. But what intrigues me and got me hooked on it was was also what Jason was talking about, and that was 
um, Dvorak's addiction to different cultures and their music and their history. I mean, I've got a, you know, there's a page in the book here where uh, I worked in a quote from uh, the iconic American orator, Frederick Douglass. Uh, Every Negro spiritual was a testimony against slavery, a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. And that kind of, that kind of um, text or wording uh, quote, which I found in my research, um, opened this up wide to me because I already, I grew up as a kid totally addicted to American Indian culture and the things that they did because I love to draw and paint Indians and, and uh, look at their history and I always wanted them to win. But then when I saw the connection that Dvorak made between them and you know ex-slaves and those cultures of color coming together in his music, I, I thought this, is, this, this would be a great story to tell visually as well. We are nearly out of time, but uh, Jason, I would love to hear a little bit more from that American suite in A major. Uh, you brought us a piece from the fourth movement. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, it's funny. When, when we hear um, the music from this show, I, I'm sort of like, wow, there's so much variety. But then we always kind of say the same thing in the end about it. Um, and I think that's what makes it such powerful music. It's got got kind of a universality that that when you hear Dvorak's music you kind of know and you feel what he's talking about um, or what he's writing about in the music and um, in this movement which is on, on Andante that you know I talked a little bit about that multi-sidedness of, of Dvorak being able to straddle um, like a very formal type of music with lots of conventions and, and lots of expectations and then enliven it so much with rhythms and harmonies that come from um, non-formal music, just from vernacular music that people have sung to one another for generations. Um, and the way he does that is just magical, and I think that shines in this music. That's some of the fourth movement of the American Suite in A major, Opus 98B, written by Antonin Dvorak and performed by the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony Orchestra. I've been talking with the artistic director and conductor of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony Orchestra, Jason Weinberger. Thank you so much, Jason. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jody. And Gary Kelly, who recently published a graphic novel based on Dvorak's time in America and in Iowa. It's called Red, White, and Black, America's Check with Balance, Antonin Dvorak. Gary Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And you, Jason. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Pyramid Theater Company of Des Moines was founded in 2015. It's Iowa's only black theater, dedicated to producing work written by black artists, amplifying black voices, and making sure that artists of color in Des Moines have an opportunity to practice their craft. 
Pyramid Theater Company survived the pandemic and is now welcoming new leadership. Napoleon Douglas is a professional actor, musician, and producer. He also has a business background and deep roots in Des Moines, and he is now the artistic director of Pyramid Theater Company. Hello, Napoleon. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on today. Well, thank you so much for being here. And before we really focus on Pyramid, let's talk about you. Did you grow up in Des Moines? I did. I did. I wasn't born, but raised. All right. And when did you first start performing? Uh, Oh, I was young. I'll have to give credit to my aunt and my mom who put me in front of the church house at Corinthian Baptist Church, probably about four years old. I started there doing pantomimes and uh, singing in the choir and all that. So that's where I really got my first uh, taste of performing. And as you got older, you joined the Isisaret's Drill and Drum Corps? Yeah, yeah. I was on that team for about 10 years. And I will say that was one of the very, like, instrumental groups that developed, like, my professional career, just from a discipline uh, standpoint and taking me all over the country uh, from such a young age. I really got to see how the arts can provide opportunities uh, that can take you outside of Des Moines. Absolutely. Now, I've I've watched the Isisaret's perform. I don't know very mm-hmm. much about it. When when you're involved, how intense is that? Oh, yeah. It's as intense as you can imagine, probably a little more. <laughs> I mean, they're that good, so it has to be yeah. that intense, right? Yeah, and I mean, I mean, they, uh, they've been around since 1980, and the rehearsals or practices consistent Wednesdays and Saturdays, rain, sleet, or snow. You know, I mean, you can still go over to the Isis Reds building now and uh, hear those drummers going hard. So it, nice. it's really great to see how long they've lasted. Right, and traveling all over the country, you got to march in both of President Obama's his inaugural parades? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the second one, actually, I was a little older. I just, I was at a Drake, so I just assisted them. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, but yeah, I went out there uh, 2009, uh, which was a, it, it's an incredible experience uh, just to be amongst some, you know, history. And I think, if I remember correctly, there were nine army battalions. Then, um, at the b- beginning of the parade, Obama's high school uh, marching band, and then us. Oh, and wow. so it's pretty special because throughout his um, election uh, run, anytime he came to Iowa, we performed for him. So like I, I had about seven or eight times prior to that uh, as uh, when he was a senator, getting to meet him and play for him all over the state of Iowa. So it was an honor when he finally asked us to come out and do the big thing. What other kind of performance did you do when you were in high school? Um, so, so, uh, outside instrumentally, I guess I was in Isis Surrettes. I also played in the band. Uh, I started, uh, with the drums and went to the clarinet and saxophone a little bit. Um, and then, but I was really heavy in show choir, to be honest, show choir. I was in a gospel choir at Roosevelt High School. I'm actually the, um, the founding, what well, I guess the founding president and student director of Bridges to Harmony Gospel Choir at Roosevelt High School. Um, I started my junior year there. Um, and then uh, in stage theater as well. Uh, back in the day, uh, Lori Glave was the head of the department there. Um, and with her and Marianne Sims at the helm of the music department, I was just constantly uh, busy at Roosevelt. Wow. Well, mm-hmm. and, and you studied theater arts at Drake. Do you remember the moment where you you decided this is what I want to do for a living? This is how I want to make my career? Um. I, 
No, actually, to be completely transparent, I think the art for a while was something I ran away from. Uh, I, it wasn't my initial intent to go to Drake. Uh, performance was always something that I want, uh, I enjoyed doing and all of that. But my senior year in high school, uh, by that time, I wanted to be a bilingual architect and go to um, Washington, D.C. I got into uh, Howard University and just thought, I saw my life going um, in a totally different direction. And it was really the scholarship money that I got both in theater and in music at Drake that kept me here in Des Moines. And um, even at Drake, uh, on paper, I changed my major 12 times and <laughs> was like pre-med and all that. And I think a lot of us can relate with being that age and not really knowing what they wanted to do. But arts was something that was always consistent. And even at Drake, when I was, you know, a biochem cell and molecular biology major, I was choreographing the musical. And so they still provided opportunities for me to uh, increase my craftsmanship in that in that realm. And it wasn't really until my senior year that I actually got work in theater post-graduation that I was like, well, I guess this is what I'm doing. And uh, I- I'm very grateful for just that traject- that journey to getting to it. Because I don't think, uh, you know, I think sometimes you can... Uh, when you decide on something like that so early, you have an expectation of what it's supposed to look like. And so instead, I really just would dealt with the cards that I was given. It almost sounds like you fought it tooth and nail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a, a there's stubborn part about me. I might be the Scorpio. I don't know. But um, yeah, I definitely. I, and I think it's coming from Des Moines, you know, I, the arts is a industry that's very heavily populated in the coasts. And so I think just the reality of being a professional seems so far, even physically, um, it just didn't seem anything like seem like anything that was realistic. I came from a household where both of my parents, although they supported me, are very business minded and saw that I was a smart kid and was like, go be a doctor, you know? And and so, um, I don't know, it just seemed so out of reach. And it wasn't until I left Iowa and saw all the opportunities to be an artist that it, you know, it came more realistic. Well, tell me about those years. I know before moving back to Des Moines, you were in New York City, but tell me a little bit about how you did make your way as an artist. Um, yeah, so again, senior year, you, um, uh, as a musical theater major, when, when I was at that time, you kind of go to these cattle call auditions where you audition for hundreds of theaters all at the same time, hoping for work post-graduation. I go down to Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, do that cattle call, that regional cattle call that they host. And I actually booked the show at that host theater. I was uh, so my. I, I remember leaving the day after graduation. I was actually a week late to rehearsals, and I was uh, seaweed and hairspray. Uh, down in Memphis, Tennessee at the Playhouse in the Square. So I stayed there for a year and I actually got work, or excuse me, just that summer, and then went out to Colorado, first in Fort Collins for a year, where I had a year-long internship, where I was in about five shows, but also I was um, a box office representative. I was a proxy producer for the Children's Theater. And it was um, uh, not only a dinner theater, but a um, uh, we had like a convention kind of complex within the building. So we had Lions Clubs and Rotary Clubs and all these kind of events that I was a part of. And throughout my uh, tenure at the internship, I actually was promoted to food and beverage manager by the end of my time there. And so I was like on stage, we're running, you know, the restaurant part of this business at 23, which is wild. But oh, um, wow. anyway, those opportunities sent me down to Denver 
I was there for a couple of years working at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, which is, uh, and I think still at this point, I'm not sure this is years ago, but um, at least at that point, the largest uh, regional nonprofit theater outside of New York City. It has like 11 theaters, had a $70 million budget. And so I really got introduced to not only the the industry at a, at its maximum capacity, you know, regionally, but also a lot of Broadway touring theaters were uh, shows were coming through, and a lot of Broadway actors were out there performing in these shows because it was such a reputable um, theater uh, where these. Um, you know, a lot of shows on Broadway have to do their pre-Broadway run, and a lot of those happen in Denver. So I got a, um, a chance to see all that. Um, I did a stint in Los Angeles for a few months, and then I went overseas for six months to play Simba in The Lion King at Festival in The Lion King at uh, Hong Kong Disneyland. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so after that, uh, and that was a little bit after I moved to New York. New York was my base by that point. But then, um, yeah, and I was out in New York for about uh, six years before uh, the pandemic and the rest of the world brought me back to Iowa. <laughs> well, I was just, that was my next question. What did bring you back to Des Moines? Um, it, it was so interesting. I, I, I what I want to say, I think it was March 12th or whatever day that was 2020 when the world started really shutting yep. down. Uh, that morning I was walk, I was, I took the train, I was living uptown in Harlem and I was taking the train down to my final callback for Ain't Too Proud the Musical. Uh, which would have been my Broadway debut. I've been in eight of these auditions at this point. The casting director and my agents and all, they said, you just need to go up here, do this dance call, and you have your uh, Broadway debut. I was very excited. As I'm walking into the door, my agent calls me and says, I'm so sorry, Napoleon. Uh, this audition has been canceled. I would never do this to you and have you come all the way down and you know, fight New York traffic <laughs> to get down here uh, without this happening. And it just kind of, it, it was a big shift, right? And I think for all of us, but especially being in such a big epicenter for any anything national like New York, uh, it was very scary. Yeah. And it also really exposed a lot of the holes and things that uh, the theater industry itself uh, presented where I was then just a broke actor in a very expensive, dirty city. And I had a union that wasn't really supporting me. In fact, they... Um, increased our insurance premiums by like 400%. And although we were getting pandemic assistance through the state and the government and all that, that was being taxed, um, there wasn't really anything for us who were out there being professional auditioners, as I call us, because that's what you are until you are on a show. Right. There was no restaurant. The, the service industry was down. Everything all my collapsed. Uh, everything collapsed. And so from there, you kind of start, you, all, like all of us, had to figure out what, we can do for ourselves. How can I make work happen from home? And so I got into like multimedia things. I started editing videos online. I was helping with like the protest and things. They're going out in New York. And um, and I think just through the, I, I, I don't want to say that I have a bad taste in my mouth in the industry because obviously I'm still in it. But I realized that some of my, um, assets and strengths would be better placed if I got on the other side of the table producing and things. And right. so uh, I finished my acting career so far uh, doing two world premieres, uh, which are, again, those pre-Broadway runs. I did Mr. Holland's Opus and Bruce, the musical about Jaws. And after that, I had a year off and nothing to do except go back to the expensive city. So I was like, I will 
come home for a little bit. So it was really a kind of happen chance and that then snowballed into all these opportunities here in Des Moines. And so I'm And still here. you have been doing a lot of performing in Des Moines, doing a lot of performing at Noche, the jazz mm-hmm. club in Des Moines. Um tell me a little bit about your relationship with Pyramid Theater Company. How did this come about? Um, well, it's great. Like, and as you gracefully mentioned, uh, us being the only black theater company here in Iowa, I actually was around when it was incepted. A lot of the original, the founding members and all that were uh, some of my classmates that were at Drake. And um, and so I, w- I was kind of around and involved just like, you know, as an adjunct or supporter, I should say, when it first came about. And then uh, my good friend, Ken Matt Martin, at the time was the artistic director and then it transformed to Tiffany and they just knew me from being in the community and things. So there was actually a couple of times uh, throughout uh, its tenure where I was back in Des Moines assisting with shows. Uh, I helped co-produce and co-direct a couple of shows back in 2019, I believe, um, in 2020 or 2021. I can't remember. I came back to um, also produce another show that we had ended up actually uh, taking off of our programming because of uh, COVID again. It it was that second spike of Omicron and we were in Iowa. I didn't know what was going to happen. So we pulled the plug on that. But uh, there's always been, it's always been another second home for me. Like I come home to Des Moines and the pyramid has always had an open door for me to come in and, you know, either just watch a show, help direct a show, you know, choreograph something, help build a program. You know, they've always just, you know, been very open to, my me collaborating with them which i've appreciated and so once this i think pyramid got to a place where they wanted some fresh eyes on what was going on and i had the kind of experience um nationwide and internationally that could bring just a fresh new perspective to what they had going on and so i think it was just a a matter of both me and the entity needing each other at the same time so we only have a couple of minutes left but tell me about your hopes and dreams for the future of pyramid i mean obviously the the mission remains the same but what do you think the future holds I think the future really is all about meeting the community where it's at. uh, Growing up in Des Moines in the 90s, especially the black community, was very thriving when it came to the arts. Uh, Through the churches, we had the Central District um, uh, Church Congress that had this huge choir over spring break that had 600 kids. The Isis Surrettes were performing, you know, every other day. I mean, we had AXO, which is a program through the NAACP. And I hope to bring Pyramid in to not only continue the kind of theatrical work we've been doing, but to also be a producing power for those kind of standing long legacy um, organizations that were bringing arts and education and all of that to the youth. I'm a product of that work, you know, pushing me forward and creating a professional career. And I don't by any means try to push all the people I come across to be a professional auditioner like I was, because there's a lot of challenges to that. But I think 
uh, providing opportunities for both the youth and adults around here to have stages to perform on, to have a microphone to sing, to have an audience to listen to them allows them to, and pushes them to do whatever they want. So I think Pyramid can be here to put on great shows, but also provide the community what it is that they've been missing over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. Well, and I know there are things happening this season that you can't tell me about yet, but yes, it, with about 45 seconds left, what can you tell me about this what, year? What I can tell you is that we are collaborating with Iowa Juneteenth that is doing programming throughout the whole year. We are doing another collaboration with both the Playhouse, the Des Moines Playhouse and City Voices Des Moines. Uh, we're opening their inaugural show in their new Black Box Theater. So we're going to do a children's show that tours with the Des Moines Public Schools and out in the community, titled TBD because I can't say what it is. And also <laughs> the last show, we're actually doing a development show at the Stoner Theater uh, that will be in this summer when we usually have a programming uh, in June and July. Uh, so we'll be looking out for that. Uh, so we got something right, at the Stoner. So you've got big announcements coming. Yeah, big announcements <laughs> coming. Just check out our website, pyramidtheater.com. And uh, we'll be sure to keep you all in tune with what's going on. Great. Napoleon Douglas, thank you so much for talking with me today. Hey, thanks. You have a great one. Napoleon Douglas is the new artistic director of Pyramid Theater Company of Des Moines, Iowa's only black theater company. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. The show was produced by Caitlin Troutman. Our producers are Danny Gear and Samantha McIntosh. Our interns are Kate Perez and Maddie Willis. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. We had technical support today from John Pemble. You never need to miss an episode of Talk of Iowa. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast. Podcasts, and you can get in touch anytime. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. I'm Charity Nebbe.